So over the last few days, the nation has rightly begun to pay its respects to Queen Elizabeth II. Flowers have piled up and tributes have come in from far and wide. The story is receiving wall-to-wall news coverage and much of that is composed of different people sharing what the Queen meant to them. I wonder what your reflections are on the Queen. I wonder what commended her to you. I grew up near Windsor Castle. I visited many times. I've seen the lavish rooms, I've peered at the crown jewels and I've watched the soldiers marching up and down. I've lived in London. I've seen the tourists thronging around Buckingham Palace and lining the streets for processions of gold carriages and the biggest horses you have ever seen. But if I'm truly honest, none of that grandeur ever excited me, except from perhaps when visiting a castle as a child. It was never the luxury or the pomp and circumstance that grabbed my attention. These things tend to turn me away from the monarchy rather than towards it. What impressed me so greatly about the Queen was her, the woman that she was. This was a person who employed over 1,200 people but fed her own dogs each day. This was a person who chose not to hide away during the war, but to serve, and as a result could rebuild the engine of an Austin K2 ambulance. This was a person who could have lived the life of Riley, but was still working 40 hours a week as a 90-year-old senior citizen. This is what impressed me, her character. She was the most famous woman in the world, but was relaxed visiting a school or a care home. This was the woman who was a target of much vitriol, but always welcomed those who were different to her and offered hospitality to previous enemies. She shook hands with Martin McGuinness. She drove the crown prince of Saudi Arabia around in her Land Rover, a man who banned women from driving in his own country. She's entertained popes and rabbis and imams, and visited temples, mosques, and synagogues. She was a woman of extraordinary character. The Queen had more power, more wealth, more influence than we can possibly imagine, yet she never used it as a weapon. She used it to serve others as best she could. As one biographer wrote, she was the servant queen, a woman of great humility, who achieved what she did because she recognised that she depended on God for strength and guidance. In 2002, she wrote these words. I know how much I rely on my faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning, and I know that the only way to live my life is to try and do what is right, to take the long view and to give my best in all that the day brings and to put my trust in God. I draw strength from the hope in the Christian gospel. That is what commended her to me. That is why I respected her. She lived a life of godly humility. I wonder what values we look for in others on a day-to-day basis. 
I'm not sure they are always the same. In a job interview, we look for skills and acumen. We look for qualifications and experience. And when several candidates are tied, we start looking for more subtle characteristics. We want confidence. We want self-sufficiency. We want independent thinkers. Who are the people that we spend hours following on social media? It's not true in every case. But for many young people, they are the fastest and the fittest and the funniest and the cleverest and the most beautiful. And every photo that is posted online is another move in the game of civilised one-upmanship. We aspire to be the best, the most powerful, the most influential, and the person with the most followers and the most friends and the most likes is the person we want to be. We may not like to admit it, or even realise that we're doing it half the time. But the values that commend people to us are so often status, appearance, bravado, qualifications, self-assurance. There is little room for the prizing of humility in today's world. But I want to now ask another question, a much more important one. After considering what commended the Queen to many of us and thinking about what we look for in others in our world today, I want to now ask, what is it that God looks for? What is it that commends an ordinary person like you and me to the Lord Almighty, the creator, the sovereign of heaven and earth? It cannot be what we have because he gave it us all in the first place. It cannot be our power, because his power dwarfs that into insignificance. It cannot be our ability, because he is far more able. Can God ever be impressed by those qualities that the world emphasises, like social status and self-sufficiency? Or will it always be that God is looking for something else? You can already tell that I think it is. In fact, I think the whole of the Bible teaches us that God never looks at the outward appearances and the impressions. He's not won over by reputation or status. No, God looks behind all of that. He looks at our hearts. And the value that he prizes most of all in his people is humility. A godly person. A person on the path to blessing is a person that recognises that they utterly depend on the Lord. And Jesus told a parable about this once. It was the one we read together in Luke 18. And rather pointedly, he told it to those people who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Let's have a look. But let's also be careful, because there's a great challenge coming our way. This parable is about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I want to begin by telling you a little bit about who they were. Pharisees were part of the religious elite in ancient Israel. 
At a time when Israel lay enslaved to the Romans, they believed that following God's law was the way out. Their theory was that if the whole of Israel kept all of God's law for just one day, then God would send his Messiah and the nation would be saved. And consequently, the Pharisees set out to ring-fence God's law. They created a whole host of other rules trying to apply God's law to everyday life. And if all the people followed their extra rules, the Pharisees believed that God's law could not possibly be broken. I think we should be fair to the Pharisees and say that they set out with good intentions. But strict legalism like this always has a suffocating effect. It ties people up in knots. It leaves people constantly in fear, worrying whether they've broken a rule or not. And inevitably, fatigue eventually fits in. Broken human beings cannot live under the pressure of perfection. So some give up, some become apathetic, some even become hostile. In Jesus' day, there were a few who would rather not listen to the Pharisees, but take matters into their own hands and decided to use violence against Rome instead. So it's fair to say that when an ordinary Jew saw a Pharisee, they saw someone they respected, they saw a holy man, but someone they knew they could never emulate. And the Pharisees became placed on a pedestal. And over time they came to enjoy that position and rather abused it. Now tax collectors were different altogether. Tax collectors were not respected. They were despised. They were not seen as bastions of virtue, but great sinners. They were deemed impure and unpopular. And why was this? It was because tax collectors, seeing very little help or hope for rescue from the great crushing machine of Rome, decided to get into bed with it. They knew they couldn't afford their rents or to pay their taxes. They knew they couldn't fight back or plead mercy from Caesar. So they took the only opportunity for survival that came their way. They collected taxes off the people, passed them on to Rome, and took a sizable cut of commission in the process. There is no way that a Jew would have taken that occupation lightly. They could only ever have come to it through sheer desperation. But it didn't stop the whole population seeing them as leeches and traitors. They'd gone over to the side of the enemy. They no longer deserved their place in the community of faith. Now the reason that I tell you that background is because we need to know that when Jesus starts telling his story, his listeners have already made a judgment. This story has a Pharisee and a tax collector in it. The Pharisee is religious and holy and devout. He'll be the good guy. He's the shining example. And the tax collector, well, he's scum. He's going to show us how not to behave. That was the listener's immediate expectation. But of course, we're about to see just how wrong they were. In Jesus' story, the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. And as was to be expected, the religious man prays first. 
The Pharisee approaches God boldly and he stands up tall and in a place where everybody can see him. Now his prayer actually begins quite well. Well, the first four words of it anyway. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you. Great. Starting a prayer by thanking God, that's always a good place to begin. The Jewish prayer book, the book of Psalms, is saturated with prayers that do precisely this. They begin by thanking God for who he is and all that he's done for his people. And we expect the Pharisee to say, God, I thank you for your many blessings. Or something like that. But no, that is not where this Pharisee goes with his prayer at all. This Pharisee is not grateful for God. He's grateful for himself. Listen again. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers or evildoers or adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This Pharisee is grateful that he is not like other sinners. He is grateful that he's kept all the rules. He's grateful for the pedestal that the people have put on him because of their sheer inability to become like him. And do you see that reference to fasting twice a week and giving a tenth of all that he gets? That's above and beyond what God's law actually calls for. God's law only asks for people to fast on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. God's law only asks the people to tithe their grain, wine and oil. Not everything. See, this Pharisee is literally boasting in his prayer. He is wearing his religious axe like a badge of honour. This prayer is more for other people to hear than God. I thank you, God, that I'm so great. That's the Pharisee's prayer. It's almost as though God should be honoured to have such a faithful Pharisee on his team. Five times in those two verses, the Pharisee uses the word I, making him the subject of the prayer. I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I, I, I. Me, me, me. This Pharisee even puts down the tax collector standing next to him disdainfully referring to him as this tax this thing standing beside me. Can you see, the Pharisees, they started out with the best of intentions. Keeping God's law is a very good intention. But they become utterly distorted by power. They become puffed up by pride. They've been sitting on their pedestal too long and they've begun to believe their own hype. And they fall into believing that by teaching right and wrong, they are the solution to the people's problems rather than God. But let us now look at the tax collector's prayer. It could not be more different. He doesn't approach God boldly or with confidence. He doesn't stand in the limelight, but hides in the shadows. There's a great sense of distance here. A distance between him and God that he fears might be permanent. The tax collector cannot bring himself to look up towards heaven. Instead, he beats his chest. And every thump on his breast is an expression of despair, of shame, of regret. And his petition creeps out of his mouth. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This prayer is the complete opposite of the Pharisees' prayer. There's no self-congratulation here. There's no summary of good deeds. There's no sense that God should be honoured by his presence in the temple. All there is is a recognition that he needs mercy. And he's lost without it. The literal Greek translation of his prayer is that he needs covering. He needs his sin covered by forgiveness. He needs his shame and his regret covered by God's compassion. And he knows he cannot do this by himself. He knows he cannot even survive by himself. That's what led him into tax collecting in the first place. He is desperate. And the only hope he has is an improved relationship with the Lord God of heaven and earth. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, he says. Now, I said a few moments ago that when the parable started, all of Jesus' listeners would have fully expected the Pharisee to be the hero of it and the tax collector the villain. Well, Jesus now explicitly turns that expectation upside down. And the parable ends with these words. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is a crunching end, a real blow to the people who are listening to Jesus. The one who is justified by God, the one whose prayer is heard, the one who is forgiven, is not the religious professional with his long list of good works. Not at all. The one who has found favour with God is the one who called for mercy. And the moral of the parable is clear. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And of course, that is the very opposite to the way that our world thinks, both then and now. In that one sentence, Jesus says to us that in God's eyes, bravado means nothing. Outward appearance means nothing. A stellar CV means nothing. Impressive social status means nothing. Self-reliance means nothing. A palace and a golden carriage means nothing. What counts is the recognition that we are personally weak and that we appreciate what God can give. The Pharisee assumed his righteousness and he lost it. The tax collector sought his forgiveness and he found it in God. I wonder how you react to this parable. Maybe some of us are feeling very challenged. We know that we've behaved pompously in the past and maybe we're rather proud of our own achievements. Maybe some of us are feeling quite relieved. But beware, there's a trap here. We must not start looking out for Pharisees in our world today. We must not start judging others by saying, well, look at them, they're very boastful, look so self-important. Because the very second that we cast a judgmental eye on someone else, we become the Pharisee in the story. Because rather than relying on God's mercy for ourselves, we have put ourselves above another. 
For us to have the humility that God desires means that we never look at other people. Instead, we look within ourselves. And we see our sin and we confess it and we ask for help. And we know that we will never be good enough in our own right. And that we need to rely on God every day. It's on our knees, not standing above others, that we will find what we need. And there's another verse in the New Testament that speaks of this, and I will finish with this. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in the place of the tax collector. Every single one of us. None of us can hold a candle towards the spotless light of God. But the wonderful news is that God still loves us. And if we recognise that need, and if we recognise that brokenness, he will step in to provide what we lack. And that well-known verse from Romans is followed by this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood received by faith. And after spelling all of that out, Paul says, where then is the boasting? It is excluded. We have nothing to boast about other than the love of God. We have nothing to boast about other than that the Lord Jesus Christ gave up his life for us to forgive our sins. We have nothing to boast about because we don't deserve any of this. But we can still receive it through a humble heart. Humility is the value that commends us to God. Humility is more important than any other worldly marker of success. In my opinion, the Queen showed us a little of what a humble life looks like. And maybe as we pay our respects to her over the coming days, we might be inspired to have that same humility before God.